filmmaking has to do so much with control, but I think this moment of losing control um, to confront an idea with with some kind of reality as a sparing partner, it's only very um, exciting and, and uh, productive way of filmmaking. And I think for me, it's always like if you this moment of material, it's a material can take something you can't invent, or it's this mm. moment of the light is, is meeting a, a body of a person, and it's like. A, so I don't know, and this is beside of everything you, you thought before, uh, narration. And I think this combination of of narration and then this materialistic film moment, it's very exciting. Mm. Hello, 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 and welcome to Conversations. I'm Eliana. And I'm Patrick. Hi. This week, episode eight, we're going to be talking about Patrick's pick, which is Valeska Griesebach's Western, which played in 2017 at Cannes. And... This is our first film that we pick from the Ancentin Regard section, which might be considered the second tier at Cannes. Even some might contest that and say it's rather director's fortnight. It's always a category or a section of the festival that I think is hit or miss. <laughs> there are some, some jewels in there, some pearls, but there are also films that I sometimes wonder how they ended up there. In any case, so... I think Valeska Grisebach's Western is such a film that, of course, to me, that spoke deeply even the first time I saw it. And uh, I haven't quite forgotten about it, but for a long time, I just carried it with me without further thinking about it. I always thought, oh, this was a very impressive film. But back then, I wasn't so much into film yet. It, that was in 2017, I think, that I saw it in the cinema. And I just saw it because I saw, oh, that is produced by Maren Ade. Mm -hmm. And I really liked Tony Atman the year before. And I thought, oh, that might be interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, um, I only saw it recently per your pick. I also only recently saw Tony Erdmann by Maren Ade as well. But it seems like Maren Ade been producing a lot of films that both of us have been interested in, including About Dry Grasses of this year, Synonyms, Nadav Lapide, as well as a handful of other films that we've seen just without even knowing that she's a producer. Right. And I think we need to talk a bit more about her later, even though, of course, we won't go too much into that because I think just with uh, Grisebach's Western alone, we have quite a handful to talk about. But uh, yeah, perhaps you didn't have any knowledge, I think, on Valeska Grisebach. At least it seemed to take you quite by surprise last week yes, uh, that it, I picked this one. It did indeed. I mean, there's always someone to discover. So there's a great joy in being able to do so. I wasn't even really <laughs> familiar with the name. I mean, I wasn't familiar with the name. She has a very small filmography, but we were able to see the three films that she's done. Yeah. And uh, her first feature film, her first uh, debut that I think played at the Berlinale in 2001 that is Be My Star, or as it's called in the German original, Mein Stern, in 2001, that played in Berlin and then in Toronto. But that is a film that you cannot really find on the internet anymore uh, these days, at least uh, if you want to watch it in some on some conventional websites and conventional forms. I think there are no discs or something. So we are 
indebted to, to the internet gods. Yeah, uh, <laughs> to a friend of the show whom I won't name here, but I think should this person <laughs> ever listen to it, you know, <laughs> you are meant by this now. We thank you deeply. So, uh, and that was quite good to have that film as well, because you can see, even though, as you say, there are just three films, there's a clear signature to her films, I think. And you can sort of see the real thread that goes through her films. And I think it uh, would have been a shame to not complete this, especially if it's just such a short filmography, as you say. Mm, yeah, and perhaps we also watched it in a weird order for you, right? We didn't watch it chronologically. We started uh, with the Sehnsucht. We did. We started with Sehnsucht, which translates to longing. Right. Um, which was her second feature film. In 2006. Mm -hmm. And then we watched Vestam. Or do you say Western? How would you... Yeah, I mean, that seems to be already crucial, right, to her project here. Is it a Western? Is it a Western? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Because it sort of speaks to both. It speaks to the American tradition, but it also speaks to her own approach toward finding a Western or finding a way to play with the genre in Eastern Europe. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, we will, of course, first maybe give you some context, but just to have maybe a basic idea about what we're talking about today, Western is a film that sort of adheres to the Western genre, but also, yeah, finds new ways to circumvent the cliches and stereotypes and tropes of the genre. And it's basically about a group of German workers who go to Bulgaria and try to establish a hydropower plant in the mountain region of the wide, vast land of Bulgaria. It's really in the uh, rural area in the countryside. Mm -hmm. in, in a village called Petrilik? I'm not entirely... Ah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. So... Sure how it's pronounced. Yeah. In the like... Yeah, that's the border region between Greece and Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. In a way, it's an inversion of the immigrant to Western Europe or migrant to America story that we often have. But yes, like you said, Kliesebach was intentionally playing with the Western form. And we'll talk more about that later. Yeah. And what do you say about the inversion is interesting because so I'm based in Berlin here and there's this cultural hub called Bibak that started out being Bibak. Now it's known as uh, Cinema Transtopia. And in the past, they've shown a lot of so-called Gastarbeiter films where people would take the Balkan route in the 60s and 70s and 80s when Germany, very ambiguously, they wanted to have all the workforce in Germany, but then they didn't pay any attention to the needs of the people to accommodate them here. And these films sort of document that, and it's very fascinating. So I see what you're saying here, and it's really in that sense. It's the, it's the inversion, and it's almost like a modern take on the still colonialist project mm -hmm. uh, that now uh, yeah, takes the German workforce to go there, but with a sort of imperialist habitus mm -hmm. but yeah that's just about maybe like the basic premise of this film because now then it's really about how the social interaction takes place there so how the workers get in contact with the locals with the villagers there it's a very small commune very small village you know i i would have to argue that it's 
really both. I mean, what you can't really have one without the other. I don't, I don't see it as it primarily being about the small village and the locals, even though I do think both in, which we'll get to a little later, her filmmaking process, the, just the amount of time that it, in uh, how much time and dedication I believe she, she spent in the locale informs that. So it can be read, I believe, as a very small village film in, in some sense, but it's undeniable, speaking to what you just said, in terms of a, a form of modern day colonialism, the EU agenda, and all sorts of other political implications that one might imagine when a German goes to Eastern Europe. Yeah, but uh, before we dive more deeply into that, maybe we take a step back here and talk about Griesebach herself. Uh, it's quite a fascinating figure, I think. She's sort of considered to be a director in between, in between basically schools of Germany and Austria. Uh, so she was born in Bremen in 1968 and then really grew up in Berlin and studied philosophy and German literature in, I think, Munich. But then she was more and more interested in film as well. And she joined the Film Academy in Vienna, where she took seminars with the uh, likes of Michael Haneke and Ulrich Seidel. And yeah, if you read up some texts and she, she they even yeah they even chapters devoted to her filmmaking to her earlier filmmaking and they sort of see her as someone in between the berlin school where she's considered by some part of the like second generation of berlin school and the new austrian film and of course those claims and maybe those like this sort of pigeonholing mm. that's often just to give these directors, you know, to, I don't know, to provide them with, I don't know, an, a persona or identity. Some framework to work with. I, yeah, to identify. They're kind of like this, kind of like that, but not quite one nor the other. And yeah. creating their own voice in some sense as well. Yeah, exactly. And so they say, yeah, she has something about a anthropologist or sociologist that mm -hmm. is sometimes connected to the New Austrian film, but then she pursues certain aesthetics of the Berlin school. But I think these these sort of connections only lead you so far. I think she has a very different approach uh, to others. When if I were to compare her to, let's say, uh, uh, what's the the fire guy? Uh, Christian Petzold. Christian Petzold, exactly. I don't see much in common here. I really, uh, Christian Petzold is really interested in narrative and maybe even having having some twists and mm -hmm. dragging us into the narrative and she is doing i would argue even quite the opposite and but we will get more into that so she is just if you look at her now she is sort of in between those movements but also in the sense an earlier voice uh someone people like Marin Ade uh looked up upon, uh, felt inspired by by her early work, Mein Stern, mm -hmm. and would even state later that this was a huge touchstone mm -hmm. for them and their filmmaking. Uh, even though then again, their filmmaking is, again, <laughs> much different to her. But yeah, what what is it about her filmmaking? What is so special? Is there, mm, 
And maybe before we go into, you know, more like mm -hmm. the theoretical parts here, is there something that initially grabbed you? Because you told me uh, off the record that there's something that didn't quite emotionally touch you, but you still could see that there's a signature. You could see there is something that is truly hers and mm -hmm. that is maybe different from other filmmakers. And I wonder if there's more to your initial response to seeing her first film, Longing, mm -hmm. like the first film you saw of her, not her first film. Right. So when I first saw Zinzucht, I thought that she had in some way mastered a way of finding and lingering on the mundane. It's a story of a man who, well, the film opens up with the discovery of a potential suicide attempt and the protagonist coming to the rescue of this person. I don't remember if it's a woman or not. It is a woman or... It's I don't not, recall it's it, not, but I think it's not that important, right? Right, it's not that important. And later we find out that the protagonist, who is a uh, metal worker locksmith, is in a long-term relationship with his wife. And he starts to have... And he, he joins a fire brigade, which takes him to a different village where he meets another woman. And then he goes between the two. And finally, something happens, which I don't know if I should or shouldn't reveal. Because that's the thing about her films, which I find in... There is almost a plot twist, which I think reframed... Well, reframed really everything. So very strong, which then made the whole entire film into a story of intrigue from the idea of what a man is, what a man desires, the second generation of children and how they interpret these um, stories that are brought, just these, these tales or the neighborhood, village gossip. Folklore almost. Folklore almost, yes. And how that then all in that last shift becomes relevant once again. At the very end, the man attempts suicide and it's unsuccessful, but we hear only, and this is reframed through the point of view of the children, who then discuss what has transpired in the village. Oh, they knew that there was a man who had a wife, who had a girlfriend, who went between, and we hear the other children claiming whether it is or isn't romantic, whether it is or isn't dumb. And this was quite brilliant in terms of playing with all the right things. And I think that that... It wasn't until the very end that I was caught by her film and by her filmmaking, I suppose. Yes, I think it was just the delicacy in which she was able to portray such a topic um, and this uncertainty, but balance that she's, that she's able to strike, which I wasn't even aware of until I saw Western or Vestan, of just both, for me, emulating the man or identifying with the man or the male figure but also finding a way to reframe their actions. I don't know if you see it in that way at all, but something about this that then if we are to make the argument of whatever feminine filmmaking is, something that is intriguing to me because for you, for example, I know you like very much watching female protagonists, but something about this film is different. And I'm not quite sure if I will discover perhaps over the course of this podcast I'll discover how to speak to that but right now it's still eluding me yeah I think she finds a way often I feel like there is sort of judgment of the directors and with her and I think that must have to do with her approach to filmmaking which often sort of 
meets midway with the actors. So the actors bring something to her and she brings sort of a loose skeleton of a script and then they work out the exact words, the exact lines, they work them out together. And this, as we could hear in in uh, the interview that started this episode, there is something collaborative that sort of avoids these uh, stereotypes or that avoids forcing these, I won't call them non-professional actors because to me that's illogical. As soon as they start being part of the film, they are paid. So they cannot be, you know, they cannot be unprofessional actors. They are professional as soon as they start in the film. But these first-time actors that she always chooses, that she casts sometimes over a long period, and we will talk about that later as well, they have their own sort of ductus. They have their own way of speaking. So that sort of prevents her from being trapped into looking at them from more like an outside perspective and rather forging something to not not forging something together but merging something together that then becomes on set its own new thing and i think that's fascinating about this quote and i think we were not at all aware of this but look how greatly this connects to our last episode where we talked about the dogma movement and mm -hmm. we heard Lars von Trier say how much he also initiated this uh, this dogma movement in order to lose control. And now mm -hmm. we hear Griesebach say that this is also about giving away the control to some extent because only this allows her to create this high degree of realism. And this also has to be talked about later in the episode. That is a term that is really not on vogue these days. A lot of people actively try to avoid the term realism, mm. be it in literature, be, in, be it in film, because there's this huge like amount of skepticism that mm -hmm. realism can be achieved. And this is not just uh, uh, yeah, a disillusioned, no, not disillusioned, an, uh, an illusion that mm. this is just an idea that is unattainable. So uh, I think she is somewhat like she's aware of this, but she attempts it nonetheless. And I think that uh, deserves applaud uh, because a lot of people, they reject the notion and thereby... That it's even possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're not even attempting it. Mm. And then they rather refrain and try to, I don't know, build in some meta commentary or something. Yeah. I mean, I would be very interested and we shall return to realism as a topic. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say for now, because perhaps we'll talk about other things first. Yeah. Um, but this is, I have a lot to say about that if I find my thoughts. Yeah. Let's maybe, because this is still conversations, right? Let's just also talk a bit about the competition of that year in 2017. So the main competition that is really not of our concern, because this played, as was said, in Ansatariga. But the main competition that was when The Square won by Ruben Östlund under the jury president Pedro Almodova. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Yes, this is a bit, right? This is a bit contentious about whether Khan is clean or not. But Marin Ada also was on the jury of that year, even though she was the jury for the main competition. And of course, it doesn't really matter for Un Certain Regard. Yeah, but uh, surprises. Yeah, it's say. true. But I, I feel like those things happen all the time. Uh, this year's Berlinale, Valeska Griesebach was in the jury of the Berlin Film Festival. Yeah. 
And uh, there were three or four films of the Berlin School. You know, mm -hmm. there were her colleagues like Christoph Hochhäusler, Christian Petzold, uh, uh, Ang uh, Angela Schanalek. And they were all in competition. And I think they all won prizes. And they all won some awards. Mm -hmm. So um, I think those things, I suppose you could avoid them. But I, I sort of doubt that they are of any consideration for the festival. Yeah. But in any case, yeah, so what is also interesting was that at the time, the UCR, so the Saint-Regard, there was a man of integrity that won the competition. In, in fact, Western, even though it was highly praised, like Tony Erdmann the year before, uh, didn't win anything in that section. The section was won by Mohamed Razoulout for his film... Uh, a Man of Integrity, and Mohamed uh, Razulov, uh, Razulov, sorry, Razulov, he uh, won in 2020 uh, with the film There Is No Evil. He won the Berlinale. I, I saw that film at the mm -hmm. Berlinale. And, and like our friend uh, Jafar Panayi, I mean, just in the way that I really like his films, uh, he had also, he had to go to prison in Iran as well and was released this year as was Panay after a few months uh, in prison. But in any case, so uh, yeah, it was, it's strange to see that Western, I think these days it's still acclaimed. There is actually a lot of literature considering that this is a film that not so many people talk about. But mm -hmm. then if you talk, talk to film critics and so on, they are really of, they all have a high opinion on Griesebach and her filmmaking overall. And her films, even though it's just consisting of three films. And uh, yeah, whereas, I don't know, I haven't heard of other films that won that year. But, you know, it's, I guess that's often the case. Uh, yeah, so there was Cannes in 2017. And perhaps about Griesebach, to say a bit more, there's also, when we talked about the split of her background, being between Austria and Germany, I think there's no getting around talking about Komplizenfilm, which is the production company that was founded by uh, Marinade, among others, and that, for instance, uh, produced Western as well in 2017, which had a long, which had a long production history, a lot of complications. And there is Co-op 99, which is a production company that uh, Jessica Hausner, I think, has co-founded and all. I don't know of all her films, but many of them have been produced by Co-op 99. Many of Hausner films, I mean. Also, Tony Erdmann was also, you know, produced by that. So mm -hmm. one can see that there is the Austrian-German link mm -hmm. between these two. There was also Kovade Saida mm -hmm. that was critically acclaimed uh, two years ago or so. Tony Erdmann, yeah. So, so it's not only about uh, her educational background; it's also about the the business side that she's sort sort of between the stools. Do you say something like that between the chairs? Like she, she she's between the no, you don't. Oh, say that. perhaps we say something like this, but I'm not aware of it. But I also have to say that this is uh, in in an industry where there are not many females who are filmmakers. It makes sense. You create a production company and then you promote and you distribute your own films. And I think that that's probably what's also helping this whole entire infrastructure and film output to occur. 
Right. And uh, this we can also see, I mean, I was surprised. I think you were back then already aware of it, but uh, that uh, Jessica Hausner, for instance, who whose film I didn't like this year at Cannes, but uh, who's who also sort of helped to some extent. I don't know what her exact role was, but she was also credited in Longing in Sehnsuch. Yes. Oh, I hmm, I might have been help with. Uh, I think she was like the assistant director. Or, yeah. yeah. So, and uh, Valeska Griesebach was then a script consultant for Tony Erdmann. So there, there's mm -hmm. all these links and you can see that this is not just uh, all existing in a, in a vacuum. They are all sort of interconnected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe what I wasn't, and you know, this is my German background, so I, uh, it's good to be aware of these things. If you think about Bulgaria, which is... As many people know, I think that's one of the poorest country in the EU. So it's great just generally to shine a light on that country uh, and to have some sort of representation. It's also good to know that this sort of links to the Western genre and to German history, because uh, Bulgaria was the country in which a lot of the DEFA Western, so the DEFA was the film company of the GDR, the Eastern Germany of the time. And uh, in in Western Germany, and there were a lot of these so-called Kalmai Westerns that are, to this day, they are very popular among Germans. There are these, there are these novels, there are these tales by a guy who never actually went uh, to the West, ah, yes. you mm -hmm. know, but then notwithstanding, uh, he just sort of spurred this idea of, the West, even in Germany. Mm -hmm. And so at Carnival, for instance, people here costume as uh, quote unquote Indians, you know, Indiana in, in Germany. So that helped sort of nourish that. And the DEFA in, in the GDR, they, they often reacted like this. So if there's something in the West, we need sort of our own version of mm -hmm. that in, sorry, if there's something like that in the West, we need something like that in the East mm -hmm. as well. So they, shot a lot of Western in in Bulgaria, for instance, in that region. So this sort of ties back to mm -hmm. the German myth of the West mm -hmm. or the German myth-making of the West. Tying that back to just the film Western, Griesebach actually also started writing her screenplay before she had visited Bulgaria as well, which I find is just very relevant to her credit as well. She studied Bulgarian for perhaps three years prior to actually going and filming, which also took another three years. I'm actually not quite sure about the timeline, to be honest, but... But it is mad, right? I it's mean... mad. She speaks fluent Bulgarian. Yeah. And uh, I think research alone took her like seven years or so. And she said mm -hmm. at some point she just thought she should start. But she also said that this is one of the most fun parts of her work. Yeah. And she could just do that forever, basically. Mm -hmm. And... You can really feel that, I think. Uh, you can really sense that what I said earlier about realism and attempting it nonetheless, you can really tell that she <laughs> that she is trying hard. You know, there is it's often it's often said that her films evoke uh sort of documentary mm -hmm. aesthetic. Right. And I totally see that. These and to me there's this aspect that of course with her earlier films, at least you cannot be quite aware of, but the part, the aspect of language is, seems to be so crucial to me in order to understand her films 
on different levels. And I think the way she uses language is really incredible to me. And I guess that links to her desire to lose control as well. Because if you yeah put words in in the mouth of mouths of people, mm -hmm. then it yeah doesn't quite sound as natural anymore. So yeah, you you talked about Sehnsucht earlier about longing, and I want to. Just should we to sort of maybe trace or trace the one step backwards? Yeah. And uh, all right. So Mein Stern or Be My Star is about teenagers in Berlin. They might even be younger than teenage age. No, I think or, because we later see this guy getting his own apartment and he has uh, like a like I think at the end he gets a contract for an apprenticeship and I guess he must at least be 14 if not 16. This is actually also narratively perhaps just do you think this is real or do you think this is some form of projection or just the fact that the character looks very young still and is engaging in adult behavior? Oh but I think that's actually a thing mm. that happens in Germany so You can theoretically quit school after ninth grade. Mm -hmm. It's like the most basic education you can have. And then you can start your apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. That also means that you earn your own money. Mm -hmm. Quite early, of course. Yeah, That makes the film even more shocking on a, well, not to use this word again, but realist. But you um, know, it's uh, not to talk too much about myself, but I have been to such places. So mm -hmm. I've been to places where people were thrown out of their parents' apartment and they uh, they were like, they had like subsidized housing and uh, they were maybe 15 or so. And I went to these places sometimes with friends. And they mm -hmm. basically had their own apartment with like 15. Mm -hmm. or so. so I think those things happened. Mm -hmm. If not, they're still happening. I don't know. But yeah, to me, that didn't come so surprising, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that what this film does do then is display a reality that is very particular yet somewhat universal. Um, and perhaps just for context, this was her her graduation work of film school. Mm -hmm. And I think to further stress this notion of being a filmmaker in between these two industries or these two backgrounds of Austria and uh, Germany... I think she studied in Vienna film, but then she was a guest student in Berlin again, where she grew up. So, and this graduation work, uh, Mein Stern, that also was a sort of a co-production of these two film schools as well. Yeah. And this takes place in Berlin, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's so weird. And I, I think there was a good point that I read in one of the works we consulted <laughs> for our research that, uh, This is so close uh, in terms of location that you then cannot identify it anymore. Like there's sometimes films where you can see, oh, this is this this neighborhood or something. Mm -hmm. But it's so close to like one maybe block or something of houses that you cannot really tell. I mean, I read somewhere it's Berlin Mitte. And mm -hmm. but I, you know, I, I wasn't quite able to. In spot. where in Mitte. Yeah, exactly. Mitte is also enormous. It's true. It's true. Mm. Yeah, and uh, it is also different in a way from her other two films that this is arguably centering on a female character, right? Arguably. I feel in some sense they have shared time. Um, 
Yes. I mean, there is a teenage girl and there is a teenage boy and we start in the home of the teenage girl and that home is then, well, we don't really start. We start with a group of teenagers being teenagers and we start from the girl's perspective as she is hit on by other boys and how the various boys in her life come in and come out of, yeah, go in and out of her life and her own receptivity to their presence and her own and um, so it it, it feel it felt more like she it's I, it's very difficult because I actually don't even know where the perspective lies. I think it's both both in the inability for when you're at such an of such an age of if you are a male perhaps of that awkward moment of trying to those awkward moments of uh, replicating what you believe is romantic or sexy or what you're supposed to do when you flirt with. Um, someone you're interested in and the the g- girl essentially being receptive to that and sort of figuring out what it is that she wants perhaps too even though we never quite get in her mind I'd say I think the male the teenage boy is ultimately the one who well I was more drawn to in a sense even yeah but is ultimately the one who I was more drawn to mm. and there's this aspect about language that I talked to you about off the record that I that really grabbed me that these characters same goes for longing they have this mund- mundane sort of slang this Berlin sociolect mm-hmm. very much infused uh, with dialect and uh, maybe mm, yeah just mm, yeah a certain vernacular but Once these characters attempt to be sincere about their feelings, mm-hmm. they sound so sort of robotic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's captured in a great way that makes you think, oh, they have never really learned mm-hmm. to express that. And like, it's not intuitive to them even mm-hmm. because, yeah, can you really learn that? Maybe because then it is robotic. And I guess that's what happened, right? They learned mm-hmm. it from maybe pop culture, maybe from daily soaps or something or like bad Hollywood movies but pop music <laughs> yeah pop music of course yeah and uh, pop music is uh, such a great point too because I told you and this is really <laughs> something I think that you don't really grasp if you've not grown up here in, in Berlin or in Germany at the time of course there's for instance this there was this slogan back then I, I don't know if back then already but at some point the former Berlin mayor um, oh, what was the name? Wolverite. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he coined this phrase, arm aber sexy, poor but sexy mm. for Berlin. And for a long time, that seemed to be sort of what mm. drew people, uh, what drew people to Berlin. You know, this like early clubbing scene, mm-hmm. this rave, the techno mm-hmm. here, cheap housing, uh, all these artists coming mm-hmm. here. And uh, and that you see see in the film too. It's all uh, you know. It's a very it's a milieu that mm-hmm. bespeaks poverty. But what I was getting at was rather the music that you also just mentioned. The music is so off the time, and I think that sort of contradicts what Griesebach herself says that uh, uh, she doesn't try to capture that moment of like early millennium, early two thousands. But I think with her approach, you cannot avoid doing that. And 
I think maybe that's the right way of doing that. Not trying to do it, but just do it automatically through this approach. I would think that she actually is very effective at doing that. Even if she's not trying to do it, I think she's affecting the atmosphere. Yeah, that's the use what of I'm music. trying to say. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and, and, and that that is spot on because... Except for Western, there's was no there was there is music. Yes, there is music. Yeah. No, I was just thinking too about um a trajectory of language in terms of what you were just talking about it, <laughs> it sounding robotic or not. And I think one could make the argument that of the three films, we have a progression and uh Vestin doesn't have as much of this robotic sense, but something else is replaced with it that also points to a, a type of disconnect or a connection that is impossible where emotions are revealed, but one cannot be sure whether one understands simply due to the language barrier, if the other interlocutor understands whatever understanding is. But there is a different trust that's placed into this understanding of emotions right. through the layer of language barrier that's and, present. And just as a non-native speaker, so of course, in that sense, I'm uh, advantaged here. But uh, could you grasp that? C could you grasp when, to me, it sounded robotic and like not like as part of themselves, but rather is something that was, I don't know, like trained or something? In, in Mein Stern and in Sensucht? Exactly, yeah. I think, I think in a way, yes, I perceived it, but I didn't know that what I had perceived was the fact that it sounded robotic, but there was something that happened that didn't allow me to enter as much. Yeah. And perhaps just to follow this line of music, because of course we should go to Western soon, but this film Sehnsucht, it really hit me and I didn't expect that at all because I, you know, I had just seen this Western in 2017. And since then I hadn't seen any film by her. So I, wasn't even expecting so much from such an early work from her but uh <laughs> there is this scene when the protagonist very early on mm -hmm. in the film dances to Robbie Williams's feel mm -hmm. and this is also I think Robbie Williams is a particular phenomenon in Germany I know that of course back when he was part of the boy group whose name is escaping me but he was part of the boy group right and Back then, he was a big thing internationally. But since then, Robbie Williams really comes back again and again to Germany because he knows he has this fan base here of primarily, I would say, um, mothers of my mom's age. <laughs> By the way, my mom was born the same year uh, Valeska Griesebach was. Ooh, <laughs> nice are you sure you want to reveal her age? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I did now. But yeah, so... Having that song that was so predominant uh, during that time on the radio, I still remember that very well. But to evoke these emotions, it's it's always a fine line to to walk on, like or to follow. That uh, you sort of elevate popular music to something transcendent, right? But I think think the film does it so early, and already to me, it had quite an impact that for many films won't affect me even after 90 minutes. And mm -hmm. this film did it after five minutes. And I think this sort of, to me at least, this bespoke her, yeah, mm, her way of filmmaking, her way to immediately 
push you into that narrative that is so loose that you sometimes forget that there is a narrative. Hmm. It's very nice to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. So, any case, comes 2006 and uh, some success at the uh, with critics and uh, at the Berlinale where it played. That marked also a time, uh, the beginning of a long, what do you call it if you like take off of work? Well, like oh, there was a long sabbatical because, no. <laughs> yeah, not really sabbatical. She she then just basically uh, worked at the German film school, like the film academy and uh, was concerned with just raising her daughter primarily. That's why she uh, skipped filmmaking for a long time and Because there was still the research going on for a long time for Western, and that I think that I think went early in like went into production in 2015, mm -hmm. but it had problematic history, problematic production history. I think there were some companies that first promised money and then the money was gone again. Mm. Meanwhile, she always looked out for a potential protagonist and. Uh, Where did she find her Meinhof in in a in a horse market? <laughs> <laughs> she says something really beautiful about the type of protagonist that she was looking for. Someone who you would immediately see stands out in a crowd, who looks like a leader, but who has something internal going on, something a little softer. This man, um, this Meinhard, who's also the name of the character, has a very just beautiful presence and stature and it's the first scene that we have with him is just him walking across a, a field but it's a it's it's not it's not even a it's not even a grand field and i think that also speaks to the intimacy of how he is framed he's holding a takeout bag yeah and there's meinhard neumann uh, that's the actor's name he was he was a construction worker for for streets so not necessarily for hydro power plants <laughs> hydraulic power plants and uh, i think he really ever went to uh, foreign countries in in the past and uh, there's also this interesting aspect that she cast the the so to speak antagonist uh who in the film is called vincent and uh, his his actor's name is reinhardt and how incredible would it have been to have a meinhardt and a reinhardt <laughs> But yeah, he could, the Meinhard could uh, take off for a while, but then was also unemployed later. But yeah, he, so you can tell that these people really, uh, they didn't have any experience with, with acting. I think he was then cast for an Argentinian film later as well. But at some point he said uh, he also refused some offers because then he found work again. <laughs> so, and uh, that, uh, yeah, I think acting maybe wasn't a steady enough way of making your income but it's interesting that not just she saw his potential mm -hmm. that then other filmmakers as well sort of went for his number and uh, tried to reach out so it's very lovely and yeah with the Reinhard Meinert uh, <laughs> with the Reinhard Meinert um, combo yeah <laughs> with the Meinert Reinhard combo You also sort of have two types of masculinity here that I think at the beginning of the film, it seems to be more of an antagonism that later sorts of fades out to mm -hmm. some extent, right? It's not really the center of the narrative anymore. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I found this very interesting. And also just knowing this Meinhard, Deinhard <laughs> fact makes me laugh. I think if it had been Meinhard, Reinhard, Meinhard, Reinhard, it would be maybe too on the nose because rarely does she also change the names of her actors. But that's so funny, right? You need to change reality <laughs> in order to make it believable. <laughs> But this, here's the thing. Okay. Well, when I watched Weston, I actually found that Meinhard and Vincent were not too different at all. And I think this would have been too on the nose to have the names be a different version. You said just now different versions of masculinity. I completely agree. But I also see it or the way that I saw it is one of them chases after something that's more business. Vincent, Vincent, not Reinhard. Vincent chases after the responsibility, the EU dream. He is perhaps the so-called modern colonizer. He's there to do work. He's there to install the hydropower plant and do whatever he has to do in order to do so. Yeah, to bring uh, infrastructure. To bring infrastructure, thereby yes. civilization. Exactly. I think to, that's more or less said. It is, it is, yeah. And Meinhard is there, but it feels as if he is just there. There's a sensitivity that the viewer perceives. But over the course of the film, the two both wind up with this interesting uh, relationship with a woman, a Bulgarian woman, 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 Bulgarian woman in the, a Bulgarian woman in the, in locale and in an odd courtship. I mean, you have a lot of dualities here, which was mentioned in one of the texts, which I found very interesting to see on the dot, how someone analyzed something that happens in the beginning and something that happens again, but it's reframing whatever action happened in the beginning. This is something that also we see in, I think, in Meinstern and in mm -hmm. Zensucht as well. And so we have that with, with the horse. Mm -hmm. So Meinhard and Vincent discover a white horse in a gathering together. That is, of course, a uh, callback to the Western genre. Absolutely, absolutely. And we also have that with the flag, which they raise. I, but I don't think he, I don't think Meinhard raises it with Vincent, but Meinhard raises a flag, a German flag on their campus. And this flag is then taken and later it is refound or reclaimed, shall I say, by, um, because it's lost at some point and it's reclaimed by Vincent in a little battle in the water, which also mirrors an earlier scene where Vincent is rude and bullies the a village woman named Viara. And of course, bullies while attempting to flirt. Yes, yes. Very unhinged way. Yes, he's um, he's definitely like, peacocking in this ultimate masculine way of when you like someone or when you're interested, you, you just... And this was a very... I don't know. How did you see that scene unravel when, when, you, when you saw it? Because when I first saw it, I, my sympathies were almost amused and with the men. And then I went, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> And at first you think, oh, this is just, you know, they're a bit, they don't know how to do that. First you feel sort of pity with them, you know, mm -hmm. for them or you feel like... There was a strange thing that happened for me. I just felt, oh, they, they work so hard. They're <laughs> construction workers. They should have their fun. It's somewhat harmless. Yeah, it's true. And But then it becomes sort of brutal, right? She, uh, he uh, submerges her. So first 
she loses a hat in the water and right. Vincent goes to get it. And then... That floats with a stream that, towards him. Exactly. And then she demands that he bring it to her. And he demands that she come to him in the water. Yeah, then uh, he submerges her and it looks rather brutal. And what Grisebach does here is sort of intercut with, with Meinhardt. So we see Meinhardt react and on our behalf, you know, like mm -hmm. the way he looks at this, he's not at all pleased to see that. And uh, this sort of mirrors our reaction to that, that suddenly really erupts and becomes really unpleasant to look at. And yeah, as you say, the scene is mirrored toward the end of the film. But, uh, the German flag that was most likely was stolen by the Bulgarians in the midst of the film that emerges again. And now it's on Meinhardt to get it back and to sort of come for them and get the flag. So there are a lot of these mm, doublings, as you say. And perhaps there's not really panning, but this intercutting between Meinhardt's uh, reaction and what's going on in the river is... Mm, is peculiar in this film because the camera often seems somewhat distant. It often, as with all our films, catches these gazes, especially these sad gazes. But there you all almost have like a subjective impetus. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of a contrast, right, to the way Griesebach, for instance, uses the subtitles here in the film, which seem to be of a rather omniscient notion that uh, it is distance to both groups of characters. You have the Bulgarian natives to, to whose words we are privy, but we also hear the Germans, whereas the Germans often don't know what the Bulgarians say and the Bulgarians don't know what the Germans say. So we as a spectator, we are sort of privileged and we are not bound to like Reinhardt's point of view. And to me, that seems to be quite important for that film. Actually, I don't understand what you mean. So it's, it's like uh, in a novel, right? You have an omniscient narrator. So the narrator knows everything, knows what's going on with the characters, knows what's going on in their head often, mm -hmm. whereas the individual characters, of course, they don't have the knowledge of the other people, which sometimes can create suspense, for instance. That means that we know more than certain characters. We have more knowledge. And this happens here too. We know more than the individual characters. So we are not really bound to, to Meinhardt's perspective because often in contemporary films, you would have subtitles and then, but you would not have subtitles for the people with whom the protagonists interact. And this is often as if to suggest that, oh, we have this subjective perspective that we share our perspective with the protagonist. So mm. if the protagonist ha doesn't have the knowledge, we won't have the knowledge. And okay. Griesebach, however, rather, I think, does this thing that goes against the zeitgeist to some extent. She doesn't do that. She tries to rather portray this encounter of two groups of people where both attempt their best and we mm. see these attempts. We see these attempts from both sides and she doesn't really uh, take sides in that. And I think that's to her credit here. Yeah, I understand what you mean now. I think I misunderstood subjective in terms of the narration perspective of what it is that we see. So when we see Meinhardt at the river and the cut to seemed like a very subjective cut to 
to begin with, but I get what you mean. Now, yeah, I had some, um, what do you call it? I, I had some strong, there will be blood vibes when mm. I saw this cut to Meinhard at the river, because that cut in itself already concretes him as a type of leader, even though he's just sitting amongst all the others and he's silent and he's observing. And I think this is also, well, back to, of course, playing with the Western, et cetera, et cetera. Just the, the strong, silent man is the one who is in power. And I find that perhaps playing off of that in the scenes that you talk about where the language barrier and the subjectivity becomes of, of what it is that we understand, how we, the audience, understand both what is being said in German and in Bulgarian even though it's obvious, or to a degree, it is unclear to what degree the two characters understand, but still they're allowed to preserve their silent, potentially, if you want to translate this to masculinity, by not necessarily understanding the other. But they do understand the other. Or do you think they understand the other? We have this this brilliant scene where Meinhardt essentially meets a Bulgarian who is like the big brother of the town. He's the one who owns the horse, that the white horse. Yeah, uh, his name is Adrian. Mm -hmm. And Adrian takes Meinhard in as if he too were, and this comes up later, a brother of his. And in this scene, much later in the film, they sit together and they talk and Adrian senses a type of sadness in Meinhard's face as Meinhardt talks in German about the death of his brother. But this is not something that we think that Adrian can understand at all, but it's just simply the gesture. So curious playing with sound and meaning and meaning and sound, sound and silence, sound and understanding or misunderstanding, and ultimately getting to a place where perhaps understanding is not at all what is said to the other person. Because this is this is something in her films that is not necessary. I mean, in Zenzucht, we have the characters who play a couple say, I love you to one another. And they both say, and then the other one says, I love you so much, essentially, as a response. And this might be the where you would call it very robotic, very mechanical. Yeah. That's the exact scene, I think. And what is said there is not potentially understood depending on how it is that you look at it in terms of it's very it's very difficult actually I think to really parse emotions and what is said but there is an emptiness to the words when they are actually said but when the words are said and they cannot be understood there's a fullness that we see in western I think at least yeah but perhaps uh because I think this scene is so crucial uh you basically described it already, but I think it's important to stress here that I think her script writing is very intelligent, all this uh, collaboration of script writing. This sort of leader of the locality or the leader of the village, Ad Adrian, really sort of in that moment becomes his brother because uh, uh, Meinhardt tells him about how he lost his brother and he just points to the sky so as if to suggest, okay, my brother is there and is dead. And we we hear them then say, we, we hear Adrian say, like, muy brat or something, my brother. And 
then he's sort of receptive to what Minot says because he says, oh, you're saying something sad. And I think this sort of captures Grisebach's project here. Like uh, people understand, people find a sort of common ground and there is a sort of unspecificity that still captures something that is relatable to both parties, that captures something that is intelligible despite of course, the insufficiency of linguistic or verbal exchange. And uh, yeah, I think to me, that's one of the crucial scenes of the film and uh, also quite emotional and well-being still, if you compare to other films, this still seems to be a rather withdrawn scene. But uh, in the context of Grisebach's oeuvre, this is very endearing and very poignant. Mm. There's another scene that um, involves the two looking at a at a, a mountain ridge. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that that also speaks to a similar thing of beauty, which is more seeing the same thing together. Perhaps I'll just not say what it is. There is a similar scene <laughs> that you told me when we watched it in a different film that was also in a way playing with the Western, I suppose. Yeah, power of the dog. Yes, and 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 I do think that this scene about you saying something sad was also a mixture of her of her own film process in general. The character of mine had the actor had in fact lost a brother, and it is rather interestingly cut when you know that the following scene you're saying something sad. Oh, I'm I'll be your brother, or as the subtitles are related to us was shot two days, two nights following the first part of the segment. So they had to find it somehow. And I think that that integration is also very lovely and wholesome because there's something about how she interacts with the village, how she interacts with the people who live there and and how, whether you want to call it realism or not, how there's a sense that it doesn't matter, but the process, knowing a bit about her process does just, in fact, enrich her cinema. In general, because I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's necessary to know the process or not, but it's I feel there are some film movements, perhaps even not really, but there's some film movements. But I suppose it wouldn't be a successful film movement if the process alone justifies what it is that we see on screen as impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a difficult discussion, right? I, I think people would argue that the film itself has to speak to the audience but it sort of really enriches the experience i think if you know about these things mm -hmm. I, i don't say it it makes the film i would never go as far because you know back then in 2017 i had no idea about all these things mm -hmm. i didn't know maybe anything about berlin school back then but i i did know that this sort of was emotionally impactful and i i, I suppose back then i wasn't really conscious of what's happening there but i was emotionally engaged with that uh and i think that is sort of this yeah visceral moment in there too mm. mm -hmm. should we maybe i thought what to me is also central is this interaction between the two groups with the german workers and uh the village and the villagers i don't like to me that's very i think it's nice how much room this encounter is given and how much mm, space to explore how those encounters would play out in 
reality or in her cinematic reality. In a sense, I guess we have to start with, which we haven't even really mentioned, is just what is Meinhard doing? Or what is he doing that's so different than the others? Yeah, I think he feels sort of mm, alienated from his co-workers and he tries to just make contact with the locals. I think uh, at first we seem just try to buy some cigarettes and there's the female shopkeeper who uh, doesn't want to sell anything to him. And then there are other men and this sort of fits in this idea maybe that you could get from seeing the film that even though there is a romantic or sexual relationship, uh, the relationship between men and women here hardly play as much role as the ones between men. And here as well, so there's this female local shopkeeper who's very mm, suspicious of him. And she basically says to the other men who are interested in meeting Meinhardt, she, she, she's more like, oh, uh, he's one of the Germans. But whereas they mean that as a compliment, the other men, they say, oh, yeah, we can, we still remember... Uh, the days when these Germans were here and they were very efficient and very good at work and blah, blah, blah. She's more like, yeah, but he's not one of the decent ones. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, there are these sort of brotherly bonds almost. He ties with the other ones. and But there's also, yeah, there's some darkness to him too, right? And we don't know anything about his, his past. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that at first sets him apart from the others because the others embody this notion of German superiority mm -hmm. that still seems sort of like Nazi ideology infused. And even I think I read in some texts that Vincent wearing this like leather jacket and just his hairstyle and so on is to some extent evocative of Nazi, uh, not uniforms, but Nazi apparel mm. or something. And I don't know if I would go so far, but... Yeah, I don't even know. If, I, I don't think I would go so far either. I'm actually curious to know how you found this. This, I mean, we touched upon it earlier, but just this duality of Vincent and Meinhard. Because, as I said, if we are putting them in this colonial framework or potential modern colonial framework, and um, there's, an open, there's, there's an open question as to whether Vincent is really the antagonist. Could Meinhard also be the antagonist of the locale? I think when I watched it, I thought, hmm, these two are very similar, but that's why there's no direct conflict with them at the end, which I thought was quite intriguing. So the way that I saw it was, like I said, that they were rather the same, but at the end, Vincent perhaps is maybe even the one who's more real or more true because he's not trying to assimilate or trying to get into the Bulgarian culture and whether, and you asked me this question after we watched the film, which I bet, which I can launch back at you. Do you think Meinhardt also winds up successfully assimilating in some sense? Because there's this, there's this desire for it that he has to, to just be a part. And that goes from spending time with the other men to riding their horses, to being with the women and dancing as well. Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting question in the sense that uh, it, you know, like you expect in the in the tradition of the Western, you expect the duel that, as you say, it never ne never manifests. But there are some encounters where they threat each other. At some point, Vincent uh, 
rides the horse to death, basically, uh, unintentionally. But uh, this horse is, of course, his centerpiece to Meinhard. Uh, it's very important to him. Uh, one almost gets the idea that uh, no one was as dear to him as this horse. Mm -hmm. The horse he found in the in what he perceives as the wilderness, uh, like the <laughs> the wilderness, mm -hmm. and uh, of you know, it belonged to Adrian. But in any case, he found it and sort of he tamed it and then learned to ride on it uh, through the nephew of his brother, uh, so-called brother Adrian. So in in, in any case, uh, uh, Vincent uh, accidentally rides this horse up a dune that is too steep and the horn uh, and the horse falls and uh, dies later. He just leaves it back there. And, and Vincent is, the interesting thing is that he never lies, you know, like you would like, that's why I think he's not villainized uh, in this film. He is, I think, also conscious that Meinhardt knows about what he did. He, and he doesn't deny it. He's all honest about it. He is also honest about his other wrongdoings. There's this water lever that distributes the water to three different villages and there's not sufficient water. To be distributed at the same time amongst all the various villagers, the Germans, as well as there's a third place that the water goes as well. Yeah, exactly. So, and once he's confronted that he used that lever in order to Uh, in order to continue uh, the power plant uh, project, he he doesn't yeah. deny what mm -hmm. he did, and uh, I think in that sense you are right. I just that yeah, I don't know. Like, could you elaborate on this idea that they are the same? I, like, because to me, right? Maybe I don't mean they're the same, but to you, yeah. Just uh, Vincent is really. I don't know if that's some sort of self-protection or something that he doesn't want to be emotionally involved with the locals there, but he's always very against even acknowledge, against acknowledging them to be equals, mm -hmm. all of them. And he has this very patriarchal idea of, of life. I mean, when, when, he, when he suggests the locals that they might start to, to, tomorrow to... Uh, speed up the process of mm -hmm. uh, building the plan. He says, uh, I will do it if I can take your daughter to dinner that he says to Adrian. Mm. I think, is it Adrian? No, I think it's to, to, another. to another person. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so, and uh, like as if he has to ask the father and, you know, uh, so he, there's still a sort of cultural heritage or something that he keeps on carrying with him. And I think that's not really what Meinhardt embodies. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're the same, same, but I think perhaps two sides of the same coin, just from this idea that both of them are being placed in Eastern Europe and they are in their own way, both literally enchanted by the white horse upon first seeing it. Meinhardt then takes the horse into his possession And is really, I the horse becomes, I mean, the horse, the white horse, I mean, there's nothing more obvious than this idea of chivalry and the idea of um, being seen on a white horse. Even what you said earlier, the nephew of Adrian teaches Meinhard how to tame this wild horse. 
And I think Meinhard originally comes perhaps with a different type of longing for belonging. It's clear that there's no one at home. I think he literally says that when he's trying to flirt with one of the women in the village who dries tobacco leaves. And uh, and perhaps this relates to what you're saying about the two sides of the same coin, that what we hear about Vincent when we are privy to a private conversation, mm -hmm. he has a phone call to uh, back home that he basically finds out about his partner, his wife, whomever, mm -hmm. that this person is having an affair or something. And we, like, I at least got the sense that, oh, perhaps he's not even certain that there is someone waiting for him either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a, there's a different... Uh, what's the word? There's a different caustic nature inherently in Vincent as opposed to Meinhard. But I think Meinhard slowly warms up to this idea that he might belong, that he might be a part of something bigger than what he's ever been a part of. And there's something that in another dual-edged way is rather lovely about that. But then we remember the context. We remember This is an inversion of an immigration story. We remember that this is this this is a type of this is representative of people who come and bring civilization to an uncivilized, desolate, impoverished place. And Meinhard winds up thinking at the end. I mean, it's open to interpretation, but thinking that he truly does belong there is how I see it. While Vincent, who comes with this job with this responsibility eventually learns to sort of back off he learns very slowly that he's not welcome he sees Meinhardt also getting beaten up later on by the local Bulgarian men and also when Meinhardt tries to in a gesture of other types of civility and maybe in a western you'd see someone holding a gun and we do see someone holding a gun in this film which maybe you have more to say about um, in a second But we see him giving, as a gift of gratitude, a knife to the, the nephew of Adrian. And later, after Meinhard is beaten up, Adrian comes and visits and, and, and kneels down to the beaten up Meinhard and gives back the knife and says that Vanko, I'm not sure what the nephew's name is, doesn't need it any, at all. And looks down at Meinhard and says, oh, <laughs> this is what happened to you. But you know, that happens in villages. and. There's something so unbrotherly about that, I find. I don't know if you think of it in that sense. Oh, it's funny. I think it's, it's, it's both. It's both. It really is both, I think. But I think it also draws a line. It is both something that happens, perhaps, in villages that one can brush off and say, this happens. But it's also a clear rejection of his presence and... And Vincent is present and he watches the whole entire thing unravel as if perhaps the duel is not meant for Meinhard versus Vincent, but rather something else. Meinhard versus the land or Meinhard and Vincent versus the land that mm -hmm. they're occupying. Yeah, to me, uh, that's interesting. I think I saw it completely the opposite way. Because, uh, for instance, what we see earlier and this sort of points to the dark side of Meinhard, you know, he... He claims to have been a foreign legionnaire in mm -hmm. the past. So he claims to have been to Afghanistan and Africa. And uh, whenever people like 
the locals when they ask him more about his past and whether, and this comes up repeatedly, whether he has killed someone, he just zips his mouth, you mm -hmm. know, and doesn't want to talk about it. But it's unclear whether he does it because he really doesn't want to talk about it or if there isn't even anything. Mm -hmm. But then some night he is attacked by by the nephew, but, you know, jokingly, mm -hmm. he just uh, jumps at him, but he knocks him. Uh, Unconscious. Like, yeah. yeah. Like just through. A, um, yeah, he reacts. And reacts. His, yeah. You no, know, and this seems to Accidentally, be. Accidentally. Yeah. But uh, quite skillful, you know, as if learned. So there I wonder, you know, if mm. this is some military move or something, mm -hmm. then he was uh, trained to uh, perform back then. But in any case, so I think when he's beaten up, uh, this is more of... By the three Bulgarian. Yeah, yeah, three Bulgarian. And I think this is sort of also a reaction to him being with the woman, because uh, I think the locals didn't like that. There's the scene earlier when uh, he is seen with the woman and... Uh, Another guy asks her if there's a problem and mm -hmm. so on. So there's this tension building up. But to me, that rather felt like uh, he either has to accept that this is part of the village life or not, because uh, it's not. No, there's this earlier scene when Meinhardt, who functions for a time, like a certain time of the film, he functions as a self-called bodyguard for mm -hmm. Adrian. and. He, okay, but there I have to go back, sorry. So <laughs> as we talked earlier about the horse, the horse is about to die, but when the man among them, Adrian and Meinhard, when they go to the horse, Meinhard says that he wants to take the rifle and he wants to shoot the horse. This is, you feel like, oh, he feels so deeply for this horse that he wants to liberate it from all the pain and he wants to do it himself. It feels like a very honest moment. And, but then he... There is something dark in him that grows out of this moment because then he acts as a sort of bodyguard and he he then even threatens another guy of the village really unnecessarily. So uh, with, with the gun and all, all the others feel like, oh, this is totally out of place. Why are you doing this? Even if we have a conflict, this is not how, how we solve problems here with gun violence or with the rifle he has there. So... But this guy whom he threatens is later to be seen uh, with a family, you know, like as if, oh, this was a conflict at the time, but we, we were still all part of the same commune, you know, we are all part of the same village. So when he's beaten up later, I don't see that as, as something where they draw the line between this is us and this is you. This is rather something that may happen from time to time, but then... What is decisive then is to see your reaction, whether you come back to us and you still show us that you are one of us or not. And in fact, he does go back. In, in the last scene, he goes to the dance floor. He's alone. He's looked at by Vincent, but he remains there and he dances as the protagonist of Longing. He dances there all by himself. And in the background, we have like, like the folklore music. And one wonders whether he can adapt to the local rhythm, whether he can adapt to the people there. But I, to me, you know, for that reason, it mm -hmm. felt like the complete opposite. That's interesting because I would still say that mm -hmm. when he accidentally knocks out the nephew, that does not show necessarily that he has skill as a legionnaire 
whether he allegedly is or isn't one, because he's not identifying a real threat when he's accosted by the three Bulgarians who actually want to sort of drown him in the water. I do see where you can have a split idea. Oh, this could be a baptism in some sense type of scene that he is being renewed into this community per your interpretation of it or a wake up call maybe in slightly oh, in mine. But I think those are two different scenes. So there, are, there's the scene when the Germans want to drown him and then they see he has a knife. But then there are the oh, Bulgarians the Germans. who okay. beat him up. Well, then the I need end. to see the film again, which is <laughs> a good... Well, one always needs to see the film again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll tell me later <laughs> what happens when the Germans go to try to do... When the Germans go oh, and beat him up. They just see that he has a knife, you know, and then they say, oh, he has a weapon and then they go. But I don't remember why. That I, that I didn't really grasp either, but I think they didn't want him to be... So close and they want to draw, draw the line, you know, like be with us or be with them. Yeah, I think that's sort of the conflict. Well, I'll have to see the film again. <laughs> yeah. So I have to see the film again, but you've seen it twice. And what did you find in the second viewing of it that you didn't see in the first? Probably a lot because these past years have been so formative for my film education, my cinema education. So I'm just much more aware of uh, the contacts right, in which these films appear, the contacts of the filmmakers and their respective careers. Of course, I think the, the language aspect is always something I'm drawn towards, just because I think the different ways of language are always fascinating to me. Yeah, language, names. I'm still wondering why character's name is Vincent. I mean, out of all the names to pick, why Vincent? And perhaps it's maybe my own my own bias towards how I view the film, but I can't help but think of that Don McLean song, Starry Starry Night, where we have at one point, uh, what is the, do you know, do you remember the lyrics? It goes, no, but I remember Vincent, this land was never made for one as beautiful as you, which I think does not really fit, but I just still wonder why, why the name Vincent? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't, I wonder if that, if those things are important to her, like, names uh, in that sense i mean often as you said earlier they she she just takes the names that are given to her and i guess just the reinhard minor thing would have been too confusing or too unbelievable but yeah i i don't know if she if she names on purpose mm. uh, uh who, who's to say but um the one thing i still wanted to talk about when it comes to like the colonial project or like the notion of you know alleged uh, german superiority Mm -hmm. uh, I love this this sort of little thread when uh, they play cards. Uh, so Meinhard joins mm -hmm. uh, some locals play cards and uh, he wins. But it is in a nutshell, this embodies like the inequality between him and the others, like the locals there, because he just can go all in when he wants to. And that sort of gives him the leverage over the others mm -hmm. and uh, and he wins the money and one thing's okay, that's it. But later this is sort of taking on again, this thread when one night he, he's, he's approached by a guy whose money he won and he asks him to give him the money back and uh, almost begging him to do that. He's drunk as well, I think. It's really, yeah. it's really such an uncomfortable scene, but... Meinhard is also not depicted as a hero, like 
he's really not the like altruistic hero who would just think of others and their concerns. He's still, even though he's, I mean, he doesn't have much, but he's supposedly richer than the other guys. And he's, he's not having it, you know, he's not giving back the money. I guess he still gives him some money back, but it's, it shows you that uh, the cards were sort of distributed earlier than that before the card game started and mm -hmm. the game from the start was never was never to be fair mm -hmm. there was no never to be a just game and i think that's a very subtle metaphor here yeah that's a very nice point you make and it's also similar in its inverse if we think back to a scene where as they're building the hydro power plant they need a lot of gravel they are expecting a shipment of i don't know 40 tons 20 tons just a lot of gravel and the gravel never arrives and later or in the middle of the film some bulgarians approach the german camp and they say they try to sell <laughs> gravel to the germans and this is a different this is a complete inverse i think because it's One cannot really say whether the gravel was stolen, exactly. but the Germans accuse the Bulgarians of yeah. stealing the gravel and thus perhaps having an upper hand in a completely different way, which I find just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and here it's really fun to see this omniscient perspective, right? Mm. Because you see the Bulgarians who try to make a deal and the Germans who, like, especially fused by... Vincent's suspicion mm -hmm. uh, they are immediately thinking that they want to trick them and to take advantage of mm -hmm. them and uh, yeah yeah the last thing I would want to say symbolically I don't know if you also picked it up it's very simple but just in the treatment of the flag when they get in maybe it's the second or the third or the fourth scene into the film um, and they're trying to raise the flag on this structure this skeletal structure Mm -hmm. And they're discussing how to do it. And Meinhard, I believe, is trying to put it up and, he, and he's asked to put it on the inside. But then they've quickly figured out, oh, we can't put it on the inside. We have to put it on the outside, on the exterior part of the frame. And I think this is a very simple, simple metaphor, but also speaks. I mean, this film is riddled with metaphors. I don't know if you find that they're too on the nose ever or if you find that that's actually quite brilliant in terms of turning something from observation into a feature film, something that's documentary into this. I mean, we're returning in some sense to this topic that we said we might return to, realism. How would you, how would you approach this term with this film? Yeah, I think she, what I really have to reiterate be that the, that the attempt to her is more important than the product, but that she nevertheless attempts where other filmmakers stop and where other filmmakers rather discuss unrepresentability. We may think of like the, yeah, it's perhaps like the highest degree you can go with this. It's uh, Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest because of course it's, you have this topic that historically has been deemed to be without equal, you know, the Holocaust and There was basically the Historikerstreit, so-called, in, in, in Germany uh, in the second half of the 20th century, whether, there is, whether this is comparable or not to any, anything else uh, in human history. And there, 
Glazer uses the or employs the poetics of unrepresentability. So it's rather about the things he doesn't show or the things he only mm, hints at and then we have to think about it. Whereas Griesebach, I think she tries to show something aware of her perspective, you know, as a as a white, well educated woman from a from one of the most affluent countries in the world, going to one of the poorest countries of Europe. And uh, I think nevertheless that doesn't keep her from from attempting it. So the realism and this is arguably only enhanced in this film because For instance, her longtime collaborator, her DP, whose name is escaping me here, but her DP um, transitions to digital film here for the first time. Her other two films were on, uh, were shot on film, and that of course allows her to create images that are more of our time. Uh, you know, that are more recognizable with how we see our our reality framed through media and. Yeah, perhaps in that, in that, in her attempt. Yeah, it was very nice to explore her filmography. And I think that we probably have a lot of different understanding just simply because of the shared background and the locality in some sense, not of Bulgaria, but of, I suppose, German culture, one that is interacting very closely with just masculinity suppression of emotions just what what it is and this this the way that she navigates how she represents these male characters and i think she's tackling two big 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 topics and themes i mean if we are saying again <laughs> colonialism and masculinity and those two together and i i think it's it's very i don't know i don't know it makes for a good film but i wonder also where there is room to perhaps, if at all, not that I want to, but just, just to play devil's advocate, to be critical, if there is any room for that. But I'm just curious with how much it showed me in what it is that I might be looking for in a film and how this both met it and didn't meet it at the same time. But these are abstract. Yeah, I think uh, maybe on a more hopeful note, it's also that uh, often films are praised for just asking questions while not offering or not looking for answers. I think just a way of filmmaking that sort of reflects what we see in the film, like the encounter, the creation of a scene as it happens, you know, with the dialogue that is spontaneous, that is sort of mm, made through the collaborative effort. She also points at ways to meet in the middle you know and find some common ground and but also there are these questions that still linger on i think one of the first questions that is raised in the film is why bulgaria to work you can also work in germany mm -hmm. and then the film ends with uh, adrian asking him why he's there what he's looking for mm -hmm. there and yeah i think this still lingers when The credits mm. when we see the credits and uh yeah i think it's just a film that resonates strongly with me as for other films too mm -hmm. and i think that's honestly just a big a big universal question for all those who feel like wherever it is that they currently live 
is not the place that they find is home or is not the place where they feel they ought to be. I don't know if this means going to Bulgaria. That is the <laughs> open question that one must make their own personal decision to decide. But opens up a whole can of worms that some people like to ask themselves and some people are tormented by, <laughs> I suppose, too. But it seems in any case for Valeska Grisebach, Bulgaria is the sort of, if not new home, at least a source of inspiration because her next film, that I don't know if we can expect it in 2024, it's supposedly called The Dreamt Adventure, Das Geträumte Abenteuer, might come out next year, but it's in any case set in the border region again of Bulgaria, Greece and Turkey now. And who knows, maybe it's headed to Cannes next year. That'd oh. be lovely. <laughs> That'd be lovely if we were able to see it. Perhaps knowing her process, it might take a little longer, but one never really knows. Yeah, we'll see. In the meantime, Eliana, let us know. What are we, what are we to expect right. for our next episode? Are you ready for this, Patrick? Hit me. Okay, so the year is 2009. Do you know what was at Cannes 2009? Is that, is that a female filmmaker? It is not a female filmmaker. Do you have another hint? We are in Asia. Oh my. No, I think I'm just, <laughs> I'm too dead. So the film that I would like us to watch next was in competition by Taiwanese filmmaker Tai Ming Liang. And the film in 2009 that he brought was Visage or Face. Oh. Based off of his interpretation of the myth of Salome, which I have been somewhat obsessed with on and off. Yeah. So we will talk about Visage next. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, thank you for introducing Valeska Grisebach films to me. It was a pleasure. Till next time. In and out. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.